You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast. And I'm here with Lance. Welcome, Lance. How are you? I am um, really excited and really terrified. <laughs> and um, that's usually a good combination for me. I've learned over time that that particular combination usually means something good's going to happen. So I'm, my fingers crossed. <laughs> you do your best work in excited terror. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> if terror is, a, a, if I'm a little terrified, that's a good ingredient. If I'm totally terrified, that's not so good. But a little, a little terror is good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, why don't you take us back to the beginning in your relationship with alcohol? Where did it all start for you? Okay, so um, my relationship with alcohol definitely started before I was drinking. So I think the story that I'll start with is when I was eight or nine, I was in the backseat of a car with my mom and dad in front, my brother next to me. And we were talking, we were going to some relative's house. And my dad said, hey, boys, I, I want you to know that my father died of alcoholism. That's what he called it. And um, it runs in our family. And it might be in your blood. Wow. And I, you know, I want you guys to know. And my brother and I were like, what? What? And we knew that my grandfather had died young. He was a, um, a cowboy. He had um, a really hard life. He ran away from home a lot as a kid because he got in fights with his father on a ranch. He joined a circus and cleaned after elephants, traveled all over America. He was a boxer. And so I'd heard a lot of stories about him. And he seemed, you know, a lot of the stories were bad. So like one of the stories was uh, that he uh, would leave the ranch that my father and grandmother and his brothers lived on. For a week or two at a time and they were poor and life was hard and he would go for a couple of weeks so my father at a very young age had to go out five o'clock in the morning four o'clock in the morning and milk cows and do all this work and he's probably 10 11 12 years old and um, my grandfather would come back my grandmother would not be happy and i think there was some abuse going on and another story that i heard was uh my father I think he broke up a fight between my grandmother and my grandfather. And he was like, why are you doing this? Why? And he said, it's, he said, you know what? It's the only time I'm happy is when I'm drinking. So I kind of knew that I had heard these stories. And so I, when I was in the back of the car and my dad said, it might be in your blood. I remember <laughs> looking at my arm and knowing that there were veins in my arm and thinking it might be in my blood. I might be an alcoholic, you know, that might, and I tried to picture what it must, what it might look like. Like, what does the alcoholic, is it like little alcoholic bugs or, you know, what is it? So the other thing I want to talk about a little bit is uh, as a kid, I uh, knew I was different. Um, I was bullied and teased from the get go. I was called a sissy a lot. I was called the worst thing, faggot, fag, gay. I started having anxiety and depression early on. I used to fake being sick because uh, staying home and watching I Love Lucy and Bewitched reruns on TV in a safe TV room was a lot more fun than going to school. I do remember going to school 
first grade and just thinking, why is my life like this? Like, why is this so hard? Like, this isn't, this isn't supposed to be this way. And um, I also remember my parents. So one of my first memories is when I was three or four years old, I asked my parents for a kitten. I'd seen cats around. I thought they were beautiful. I loved the way they moved. I'd held kittens. And my parents looked at me, and this, this kind of thing happened a lot. They looked at me with a little bit of horror in their face. And they were like, Lance, little boys don't want kittens. Little boys want puppies. And I was like, oh, okay. Can I have a puppy? <laughs> and they're like, oh, hell no. No, it's too much work. So I spent the next five or 10 years begging for a puppy. Um, I did finally get one. So yeah, um, and then the first time I drank alcohol was, uh, it was Christmas, my grandparents were in town, they stayed with us for a month during the holidays, and relatives were coming. And I was probably 12, 13, maybe even younger, I'm not sure. And I was stressed out, because relatives meant I was going to get a lot of a lot of questions. You got a girlfriend? What sports do you like? You don't like sports? What? Um, you're into art, really? Um, I was very artistic and creative. And um, so just the pressure of, oh, these people are coming and, and they're going to ask me questions and my, I'm going to give the wrong answers. And my parents are going to look like, you know, ugh. it was just it was just tough. My parents and my grandparents were getting ready for their relatives to come. And the alcohol was out on the counter. And I don't even know where I got the idea, but I just I took a cup. And I poured a little bit of everything into the cup so that nobody would notice. And I remember listening for footsteps and I was good. And um, I poured some water in it and I drank it down. It's amazing I didn't get sick. I knew not to put the queen de menthe in it. And I remember just the warmth and then the euphoria. And I got so euphoric that I had to go into my bedroom and jump around. I was, I felt so good. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is why it's the happiest time of the year. I get it now. And relatives came in, I kind of leveled out, but I still had this buzz. And I remember the relatives coming in and I came down and I remember kind of feeling open-hearted and comfortable in my skin. And all these people that I sort of saw as causing me stress were suddenly, I just saw them as loving and vulnerable. I remember seeing my grandmother's hands all wrinkly with her little rings on them. And so I was like, oh, this is why everybody has, this is why all the adults have so much fun in the holidays. Later on, I remember being on the couch and just feeling horrible. And the adults were having cocktail after cocktail and nobody was leaving that cocktail area. And I remember there's no way I can get back to where I was. Like I feel cruddy. I feel crappy. I feel horrible. If only I could get back to the booze, I could feel okay again. And I just kind of gave up. So that was my first drink. Wow. It's uh, so poignant and just like well-remembered. That's I haven't heard a story quite like that. That's fascinating. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, well, you know, I've heard you talk so much about when those of us who 
um, have a lot of anxiety and stress and stress and depression, you know, often that first drink is the first time we feel comfortable in our own skin. And when I heard you say that, I was like, yeah, I, I, I remember that. Fast forward in high school, I, I came out to myself, I was watching the Phil Donahue show, and he had some gay men on the show, and I was probably 14, 15, and uh, the definition of a gay man was a man who is uh, attracted to men, and I remember, I think I was homesick, yeah, because it was the Phil Donahue show, and it was daytime TV before Oprah. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm fucked. I'm gay. I'm not only am I called a fag, but I am one. And previously, the way I would describe my life is um, I knew something was wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but I better hide it or it's going to be really bad for me. And then when I realized what it was that I was hiding, it was like, oh, man, this is like the worst. You felt fear. I felt fear. I felt terror. I thought, oh, my poor mom and dad. This is the worst thing that can happen to parents. Yeah. And ironically, I knew a lot of my friends were gay too. I just knew instinctively. And maybe this was over time. And I was in a drama class with some of my other gay friends, male friends. And I know they were gay because we had a high school reunion recently where all us LGBTQ folks got together and talked about our experience. And I was the only one that knew I was gay and knew they were gay. And they were like, how did you know that? And I was like, well, it was obvious. <laughs> but we would be in drama. So we were in a drama class and uh, people would get up on stage. And one of the most popular jokes was to act out that you were gay. And that was the joke. That was the big horrible thing. So in that process, I kind of moved away from those friends and moved in with some friends who um, were not gay, but were as depressed as I was, as angry as I was. And we would hang out on uh, Stoner Field and smoke cigarettes. And um, one of my friends uh, always had pot. And... Um, I hung out with them because even though I couldn't come out to them, I just knew that they were closer to the truth, to reality. And I couldn't, I couldn't fake, I couldn't fake um, what my other gay friends were faking. And these friends had other issues. They had divorced parents and um, abusive parents. And we started drinking on weekends. And, um, and that was sort of the refuge. Like we'd have shitty weeks in, in during high school, we'd suffer through it. And then weekends, I don't know how we did it, but we drank, we started, you know, right away, almost a six pack each Friday, Saturday night and smoking weed. And this went on through most of my junior and senior year in high school. Um, and I just remember loving that relief, like, uh, don't have to feel the depression, don't have to feel the pain, don't have to feel the anxiety. I'm with people who are as angry as I am. This is the late 70s, early 80s. So we really got into punk rock music and new wave music. Um, we started going to concerts and it was a great time. And during the, that time, there were a lot of local um, punk rock bands. So we'd drive into San Francisco and see great music, get drunk. What scares me is um, how, how much we drove um, under the influence. 
we're really lucky, um, but nothing bad happened. And then fast forward, I moved to San Francisco um, almost as soon as I got out of high school. And uh, that was in 1981. And, you know, when I was with my high school friends who were straight, they were all experimenting sexually, emotionally, having boyfriends, having girlfriends. And I was kind of the confidant. I was kind of the one who was kind of off to the side. And so I moved to San Francisco and um, there was a great club scene. There was a bar called The Stud. It was kind of a, a punk rock queer club that was really popular. Um, I went to uh, San Francisco State to study art. And um, it was a really fun time. Uh, we would go, me and my friends would mostly go Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. That was discount drink night. So we could afford to drink. And um, that's where I met a lot of friends and partners and lovers. And finally, it was my turn to um, explore being a, a full human being and explore being gay and queer community and other people and meeting, having you know trans friends and just the whole gamut. And, and then not long after that, the AIDS crisis hit. So here I'd gone from the trauma of my childhood to moving to San Francisco, finally getting to be free and be myself, and then AIDS hit. And I'm still um, processing that, you know, so many years later. I did uh, have my uh, meet my first boyfriend in a dance class at San Francisco State. He was the TA. And we were together from uh, when I was 22 to uh, 27. And um, he was five years older than me. And, you know, during that time, uh, we saw so many of our friends who were um, beautiful, healthy, young people um, get really sick, um, shrivel up. I remember seeing one friend uh, who was a regular in dance classes, a beautiful man, healthy, really extroverted, fun. And I was walking down the street and I saw an old man who was just skin and bones. And he was like, Lance, Lance. And I didn't know who he was. And um, and then I realized it was Yuri. And he was just skin and bones and looked like he was 80. So it was a very terrifying and frightening time. My boyfriend, who was older, um, his partner right before me passed away of AIDS. There was a, a point. So during that time, you couldn't, there was no way of finding out you could find out if you're HIV positive, but there's nothing you could do about it. So we were resistant to getting tested because we were sure we were positive. I was a bit of a hypochondriac. So I was, through my anxiety, I was losing weight, which is one of the symptoms of HIV. I was, because of the stress, I was getting sick more. Um, I would get ingrown hairs on my arms and legs that would make little purple spots. I was having night sweats, so I was almost kind of like manifesting the symptoms. And so at one point, my boyfriend was like, we're getting tested. Like, we can't, I can't stand this anymore. So we went in, we got tested. Um, when at the, In those days, I think it took, I want to say two weeks, maybe it was just a week, but it took a long time. You'd go in, have your blood drawn. Um, uh, and so a week later, we came to get our results, both terrified. Um, we had to do it individually. We met in a courtyard and I looked at him and he looked at me and I was like, I'm negative. And he's like, I'm negative. 
God. Yeah. And we, I, you know, we jumped up, we hugged each other. We were, you know, amazed. And we actually had some friends uh, later uh, to have a party. And it was like a weird negative party. So uh, we were very lucky. And during that time, we got really healthy. A lot of people did. So my drinking really stopped. The party was over for a lot of us. And um, a lot of us got into a lot of new agey stuff. At the time, I had a, a wonderful mentor, spiritual mentor, Jack. And he uh, got me into 12-step meetings. At the time, my first meeting was Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous because with my partner, I was having all these codependent issues. And he's like, oh, well, come to this meeting. And the first time I went to 12-step meetings, I loved them. I was a little misdiagnosed with the Sex and Love Addicts meetings and somebody suggested I go to Al-Anon for adult children of alcoholics. And I was like, well, my parents aren't alcoholics, but my grandparents are. And like, well, just come and see. So I went to a meeting and they described the qualities that an Al-Anon adult child would have. And I, I fit all of them. There's like 21 questions. Do you feel more alive in the, in the midst of a crisis than you do when things are going normally? Do you take care of others? more easily than you take care of yourself. So for 10 years, I, in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, I went to these Al-Anon meetings and they were wonderful. I felt like people took off their masks, people told their stories, people always had amazing stories, you know, the good and the bad, you laughed, you cried. I went because I still had so many issues with anxiety and depression. I had a period, um, I had insomnia. And the Al-Anon meetings and the 12-step meetings really, really helped. But part of that was hearing more mythology about the alcoholic. What I heard about alcoholics was, you know, very much like my grandfather, like horror stories. There were a lot of double winners who would come in. And one thing that I heard often was um, that alcoholics were the piece of shit that um, the universe revolved around. That's how they saw themselves. So it was sort of this very narcissistic. Thing. It was this disease where you, all you cared about is yourself, um, and the consequences were always really horrible. So in my 30s, I um, had my second boyfriend. My first boyfriend and I parted ways. We're still really good friends. We still call each other soulmates. We still talk a lot. And this particular boyfriend I met at a church, Glide Church, which is a very liberal church in San Francisco. And, um, and he was a wine connoisseur. When we first started dating, he drank wine a lot. And I was like, you're an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you drink all the time. And he's like, oh, that's just an American idea. This whole AA thing, this whole alcoholic thing. You know, he had spent a year in France. He was a wine consort. So I started drinking wine with him uh, for dinners and kind of um, got away from the 12-step world and started drinking wine on the regular. and still had a lot of anxiety and depression issues. Um, I moved in with some roommates. This is the early 90s. And one roommate was uh, a, um, he went to Addicts Anonymous. So he's somebody who had um, done some pretty heavy duty drugs. And my other friend, my other roommate was a, uh, you know, a wine drinker, very much like my boyfriend. So I started drinking wine often in the evenings. 
Um, of course, bar scene started going back to the bar scene. Bar scene was more about binge drinking and having a really good time and then recuperating during the week. Um, so that was still happening. But for me, the wine habit slowly crept in. So I was having one or two a night with my roommates, then another one when I was watching TV. And long story short, um, over about 10 years, it went from a glass or two to a whole bottle. And I think it's hilarious because there was quite a period where I would leave just like a quarter inch at the bottom of the bottle. So I could tell myself I didn't drink the whole bottle. I can relate to that. <laughs> the games we play. The games we play. So, so I was drinking, but I have to tell you, I was also exercising, going to dance classes. I was, uh, I got into meditation and Buddhism. Then I moved into my own studio apartment, and and the wine habit just crept in and. Um, I have to say, I went to art school um, in the early 90s uh, to the San Francisco Art Institute and had a good friend. I was having some weight problems and she's like, oh, you should switch to vodka. You'll lose weight if you um, switch to vodka. So I tried that and it kind of worked, but also this wondering, I'm sorry? Also vodka. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, so I, so here's the thing. So I was going to, you know, these 12 step meetings, Al Anon, hearing about alcoholics. I always kind of wondered if I had an issue with alcohol. I clearly did. But like one friend who went to AA said to me, he said, You're not one of us. You're, you're a lush, honey, but you're not one of us. Mm -hmm. And I could see it. I could see it because the stories were so intense car crashes, jobs lost theft my friend who got me into 12-step jack he had been in jail he was a, re a recovering addict i would go to meetings and two things would happen one i never wanted to drink more like i there i was in a room full of people who wanted to drink but couldn't so i was feeling that energy uh we can't drink we have this disease and then i'd hear these stories about mayhem and car crashes and and fights and jail. And I was like, I'm good. <laughs> I'm going home, get my bottle of wine, because clearly I don't belong here. So in the vodka story, what happened there was things got really bad really fast. And then I started to think, oh, I do qualify. Like, I think the first time I ever had to drink in the morning was after a night of vodka. And I was just like, I cannot function. So I had like a, a couple shots. I was like, oh, that's, there you go. You qualify now. You know, it's in your, it's in the blood, you know, here we go. Evidence. So I, I, I remember sitting down on my couch and going, okay, what am I going to do now? And I was like, I, I just can't, you know, I've gone to the AA meetings. That's not fitting. Let's try going back to wine. Let's see if that is okay. So I went back to the wine, really tried to stick to a bottle. I have to admit, sometimes I would feel a lot of anxiety at the end of the day and I'd be like, oh, I'm just going to get one of those little bottles and then I'll have a bottle and just a little bottle. Um, and over the years, I was really clear that if I drank a bottle, I was okay the next day. Still feel crappy, still have anxiety and depression, but it was workable. But if I drank more than a bottle and a half, I was fucked. Like really fucked. 
so I knew I had an issue. I did have a therapist. We talked about it. Um, it's interesting. I ended up staying with him for five years. And the reason I got him was for him to help me with my drinking issue. And we discussed it. And, you know, the whys of why you want to drink and why you don't want to drink. Well, he, we worked on those things. And I kind of convinced him that I was fine. Because, yes, I would drink a bottle of wine, but I would start at seven o'clock at night, have a glass, have probably a glass an hour. Part of my story is that weed became legal in, in California. So I was able to, instead of drinking more alcohol, I was able to supplement with the weed. So I wasn't drinking more, but I was adding the edibles or whatever I was doing. Um, and he told me, he was like, you know what? You clearly want to drink more than you don't want to drink. And I can't help you. And so we ended up working for five years on other things and it was great, but that's as far as he could go. Um, one thing I want to say about going on meditation retreats, um, a lot of times I would go and I would be like, oh, this is my detox, right? So I'd go for a week, two weeks, up to a month. I went on a month long retreat. And what I found so fascinating um, about them, especially after reading This Naked Mind, was I was putting myself in a situation where there was no alcohol. There was no way for me to get it because usually somebody would drive me there and there was no way to get to a liquor store or anything. And looking back, what's so fascinating to me was, yes, the first night I'd be like, oh, I'm going to my room. There's no wine. There's no TV. You know, oh. and then I'd, then I'd be fine. And looking back, you know, I, I slept a lot, but that's really normal on retreats because you have all this kind of workaholic momentum that you're bringing, you know, and now you stopped everything. But it's so fascinating to me because um, I know um, there's studies that when people, for instance, go to jail, they don't have much of a withdrawal. They don't have much issues. Um, yeah, no decision. Yeah. There's no back because so much of the withdrawal comes from the back and forth. Should I, shouldn't I, can I, can't I? And we work ourselves up in such a frenzy. And like that <clears throat> is so much of the emotion of, of withdrawal. Right, right. How was reentry just out of curiosity after a month-long retreat? Well, here's here's a couple of things. So one thing that I noticed is that when I was on a retreat, I would think almost immediately, like, if somebody brought me a bottle of wine, I would not drink it. In fact, you would have to hold me down and pry my jaw open to get the the um, wine in me. Now, I wasn't. It wasn't because I was on a meditation retreat and everything was cool. I was still having a hard time. I was still having emotions come up. I was still having anxiety, and you know, you you take everything away, and all your shit comes up. But what I noticed was that I loved being with myself and being real with myself, and. Uh, the metaphor I would use is like of a child whose parent is going to be attentive and loving the whole week you're there, the whole time you're there. And that's how I felt with myself. And so even though I was in pain, often, not always, but often, I didn't want the wine, you know, because I had this relationship to myself. And so that was so beautiful to see. And so I would be like, huh. How do I how do I take this awareness home? And it was really hard. And to be honest, I could only do it for a week or two. Tara Brock says something really beautiful. She says, um, the joy, joy is in getting real. 
and so I could see that um, when I was home, I was drinking to not feel the pain that I was feeling when I was on meditation retreats. But then I could see on meditation retreats that, oh, it's not that bad. In fact, you know, it's sort of like if you're with a, a puppy, let's say, that's anxious and having a hard time, you just want to be with that puppy. You just want to hold that puppy. You don't want to give it a drug and fix it. And you you want to attend to it and take care of it. And um, And so on retreats, I could see I had the capacity to do that for myself. But I would come home drinking would come back the habitual stuff would come back and um in every morning so mr evening would come home after a hard day of work going to the gym going to a dance class i have to say i got really good at uh, detox to retox i loved your pitcher plant analogy and where i see myself on the pitcher plant is that so the pitcher plant is the flower that is a metaphor for drinking and addiction and you start at the top of the flower, like an insect wanting nectar. And it's like, mmm, tasty. This is nice. And you start to slip down the pitcher plant, right? And as you slip down, you get more and more stuck. And at the bottom are people who, I guess, die from, from drinking or die from the pitcher plant. And for me in that metaphor is I got really good at going down the pitcher plant and stopping. Because I had such good guardrails. I had yoga. I had meditation. I had, you know, I had all the thing. I had um, health food. I had juicing. I had wheatgrass. <laughs> all these things to help me. I had herbs. But uh, so Mr. Evening was coming home after a hard day, hard day at work, going to the gym, coming home, having a glass of wine, having some weed or an edible, feeling groovy watching movies, ah, oh, you know, hard day of work, here it is, here it is, seeming to have a nice time, going to bed, waking up. Um, I loved it in your book when you said like waking up at 3, 3.33 in the morning, that was me too, waking up, ah, but I had herbs. I know what herbs to take. So I'd get up. I thought I had insomnia. I didn't know it was the alcohol at the time. Yeah. So I'd have insomnia, take my lemon balm, take my kava kava. Um, I was really good at meditating. So I do body scanning, which is really boring. I could put myself back to sleep. Then I'd wake up and I'd feel like crap. The metaphor that I had in my head was I have wine in the evening and every time it takes me to the same dump site. Mm. Like I saw myself on a shore filled with trash. Here we are again. Here we are fucking again. But um, again, I didn't you know, I, the only answer was 12 step. I actually had talked to doctors. I had, they had put me in programs. It was all 12 step stuff. I'd go in, you know, with Kaiser, I'd go um, talk to my doctor. They'd put me in meetings. I'd be with people who were doing all kinds of drugs. It was 12 steppy. Um, it just didn't work for me. So I prayed. So I woke up in the morning and I'd just be like, oh, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way please God help me. And I felt completely hopeless. And I think there was one morning when I was, I probably had kind of a binge drinky weekend, which didn't happen as often. The older I got, the less that happened. I live in the Castro. There's lots of bars. There's lots of fun you can have. Um, but I woke up one morning and was probably YouTubing how to get over a hangover or maybe even am I an alcoholic? Saw lots of crappy videos of people talking 12-steppy stuff that I couldn't relate to. 
you know, in the, in the terms of alcoholism and um, one of your videos popped up mm. and I was like, who is this lady? <laughs> and, and I gotta be honest with you. I, you had something that I wanted, you know, you had, you had, and it wasn't just the words you said, but it was who you were. You know, there was a realness, a vulnerability, and a light. And you had the same problem that I had. Um, I got your book, This Naked Mind. And um, when I read, first read your book, I was like, she drank two bottles of wine? I, I could have had two bottles of wine. You know? <laughs> but I was like a bottle and a half. You know, I was a bottle or a bottle and a half. Um, I knew... I heard at some point that your work was based on Byron Katie's work and I had already fallen in love with Byron Katie. And I had heard Byron say, you do the work and her work is all about moving, seeing your thoughts about past and future and finding your truth in the middle of that. What's really true for you. And Byron Katie's work resonates so much with me because as a child, what is true was a big part of my consciousness because I was constantly told, Lance, you don't want a kitty, you want a puppy. And I'd be like, that's not true. Lance, boys don't want to play the flute. They want to play the trombone. That's not true. You know, Lance, boys, boys like sports. The boys don't want to do art all the time. That's not, you know, so I was constantly, and that happened in my religious experience, my spiritual experience as well. And so, yeah, uh, I, um, I read your book, and I had some friends who were also winos. These are friends that um, were part of my community in the dance world. And we had previously, over the year or two prior, gotten together and said, "Hey, let's do a let's do a um, a reset. We're, we're all probably drinking wine too much. We're probably smoking too much weed. Let's do a month where we do a reset and stop." And none of us. And we would get a week or two in, and then one of us would fail. It wasn't always me, but once it was. <laughs> and once one of us failed, we would stop the experiment. So I read your book. I loved that I could continue to drink while I read it. The mindful drinking was huge for me. The quitting, trying to quit, and to be able to do the mindful drinking and see what, how does, how does my wine really taste? tastes like pencil lead and rubbing alcohol and and um, moldy plums. And no, it doesn't taste good, you know? And how does it make me feel? Oh, it makes me feel good. Oh, now I feel like I have the flu, but I want more. You know, so having that time was so amazing. I told my friend about it. I said, let's do this 30-day alcohol experiment. I was afraid to tell her, ask her. And right away, she's like, let's do it. So we, this was January, 2020. I did the live alcohol experiment with a couple thousand other people and my friend. And it blew my mind. And the daily lessons, I have to say, so many of the daily lessons, it was like, I know this. I knew this. Um, I'll give one example where I was just like, oh, I knew this. You talk about how when you have a drink, you're here and um, you, f- you feel this way, whatever that is, you have that dopamine spike, you go up, woohoo, and then you go down. And now you're here when you started here. 
So you have another drink and you go, uh, uh. And when I learned that lesson, I remembered my second boyfriend, who was the wine aficionado. We were at a party and it was like two o'clock in the morning. We were the partiers that had were staying or hanging on, you know, to the party. And we were sitting outside and he said, you know, because we're talking about being the lost ones. You know, we're all just trying to get that first hit with that first drink. We're all just we're all just chasing that first high. And there was about six or seven of us. And we all were so upset. We're like, no, that's not what we're doing. That's not true. And I, and I was one of those people and I knew it was true. I knew what he said. It was true. So when I did the live alcohol experiment and you talked about that, I was like, he was right. He was right. And so, so many of the lessons are like that. Some of them, like the sleep stuff, I was, um, I've been an insomniac all my life. So one part that was so hard for me to give up was um, giving up drinking my wine so I could fall asleep. You know, I really loved passing out. <laughs> um, it always taken me since childhood, a half an hour, 45 minutes to fall asleep. So that lesson on sleep was um, amazing to me. And I kind of came to the conclusion that like one hour of real sleep is worth 10 hours of drunk sleep. So a lot of it was mind blowing. And at the end, you know, of the 30 day, when you offer the um, experiment where we can drink mindfully, I was like, no fucking way, no way in hell. I'm done. I've woken up from the matrix and doing what, doing it with my friend was amazing. Um, she was somebody who drank wine every night too. And one thing I want to share with you is we went to a, a party together. This was probably day 27 or 28. And um, one of our friends who we had done our own experiments with was at the party. I brought kombucha for her and I, and this was our first party ever without drinks. And we both were like, how the hell are we going to do this? And I had the best time. I was grounded I was listening. I was like, oh, I can just listen to people. I don't have to like try to be the life of the party. I don't have to get into this giddy, weird, confused state. And um, she was also having a very positive experience. And I was sitting with a friend. This is really bad timing on my part. She had a glass of red wine in her hand. And she was like, so how's it going? And I, I said this and thought this at the same time. I said. I'm so excited about this. I'm as, and this is really weird, but I'm as excited about this naked mind and being alcohol free as I was when I decided to go to grad art school and pursue my art. Like the, it's the same excited energy. I'm going to be involved with creative expression. I'm going to be involved with truth telling. I'm going to be involved with rebellion because all art's all about rebelling and telling the truth no matter what. <laughs> so I heard, I heard myself uh, say it and I looked at her and she was just kind of like, what? What? And I was kind of like, what? And um, such bad timing in my part because she had this big glass of red wine in her hand. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so anyway, what? Blah, blah, and I changed the subject. And it's taken me a while to, um, to like, what was I saying? What was I thinking? And I think I just expressed it. But um, so, yeah, after the 30 day, I um, felt like I had woken up from the matrix. 
And this is 2020. I'll be honest, I found myself, I think I, I had like another three weeks of being alcohol free. And then that year, I probably had 20 data points. Now I know this because I recorded them on my phone before, during, and after. I said, you know what? It's my cat's tail. Sorry. Hold on. <laughs> I, I, for whatever reason, I really want to drink and I would feel this momentum. It's like, it's, I can't stop it. You know, that neural pathway is deep. It, here it comes. So I'd record myself saying, I'm going to drink tonight. And this is the reason why. And often it was like, I've had a really hard week. I need a break. I need to relax. Da, 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 da. And then I would, would record myself um, after my first drink. And I would be like, I, I do feel kind of good. Yeah. Da, 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 da. And when I would see it the next day, I'd be like, wow. Just after one drink, the eyes lids are a little heavier. Hey guys, we are so excited because for June, for Pride, this Naked Mind is going to be offering the live 30-day alcohol experiment for the LGBTQIA++ community and our allies who stand with us. At this Naked Mind, we know that for the queer community, the challenges with alcohol often present unique experiences and life challenges that are unique to our community. So we have created a live for Pride that has all LGBTQIA plus coaches that understand and have gone through what you've gone through. So don't hesitate to bring your issues. Don't hesitate to bring your feelings and your emotions and your challenges because we're all going to be there together to support each other and take a look at our relationships with alcohol and through this really revolutionary and radical program that is science-based and based on your lived experience, we are going to check out the cognitive dissonance, the part of our brains that wants to drink and the part of our brains that would like to drink less or maybe not at all, and come to congruency. This work is done through connecting to the subconscious and our thoughts and beliefs and questioning them. It's a ex really exciting process. I did this over three years ago and it was almost like a magical trick. It really set me free. And now I drink as much as I want, whenever I want. And the last couple of years, that's been zero because you know what, alcohol? I just ain't that into you. So if you want to join us, it's going to be fun. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be really queer. We're all going to be there together. and. I can't wait to see you there. Please visit livetae.com and register today. That's livetae.com. I am so excited to see you guys there. So yeah, so I kind of did your experiment, but I, I did the long way. You did the shortcut. You know, I didn't take away the other entertainment. I didn't take away the other things, but I did it very mindfully. And what I loved about what I love about this naked mind in your methodology is that it wasn't a problem. Like yeah. here I had gotten to this place where I was alcohol free and thrilled about it. And I'm never drinking again. And oh, look at that. I really want to drink again. Let's and I did it very mindfully. I recorded it. And there was not one time where the next day I was like, wow, I thought I was going to get this. And that's not what happened. Uh, and I got to see myself, you know, and I would record my, you know, the various levels. And I have one um, uh, video recording of myself where I'm like, it's never enough. It's not, you have that first glass of wine, you have that weed, you get that buzz and all you want is more. And it's, 
This is not fun. This is not relaxing. This is not um, escapism. This is, this is, this does not work. So yeah. So uh, 2020, I probably drank uh, 20 times. And then in 2021, I think it was um, five times. And the last drink that I had, I had a party here in my garden. It was a traditional party that I have here. Champagne is usually involved. I've been very open and loud about my sober curiosity and my alcohol-free lifestyle on Facebook and social media. And so these friends are coming over and um, I had a glass of champagne with them. And part of me did it was because I wanted to show them, yeah, I'm mostly alcohol-free, but I can do this. You know, looking back, I can see, why did you do that? And I wanted them to see, I'm still, I'm still cool, you know? And that last glass of champagne, I was like, oh, I'm going to get a little buzz. I haven't done this in a year. You know, let's see what happens. And the buzz didn't come. And all I felt was um, toxic and a little fluey. And it lasted all day. And I, that was my, my last glass of um, anything. So yeah, I just want to I just want to say that's the brilliance of um this naked mind because I never I never wanted to be in a program or on a path where the point was to have days built up. You know, I definitely when I woke up in the morning and was praying, my thoughts were I I don't want to suffer like this. I want to be happy. And so yeah, I I really wanted to go for freedom. I really wanted to go for um truth. You know, breaking out of the matrix, I think that's such a great metaphor, you know, the matrix being sort of the booze culture in our world, you know, all this mythology, and it's it's not real. And so when you wake up and realize it's not real, you're free. Now, is, does that make everything easy? No, I just rewatched the matrix recently. There's one guy who's broken out of the matrix, and he's like, no, I want to go back. this is too hard i want to go back i want to be living in delusion you know things don't work out very well for him in the movie so uh i could say a lot more annie i could go on and on i could never you know that's the problem with telling your story is you can never tell all of it but i'll stop there this has been absolutely amazing and one of the things that you articulated well, that I think is worth like sort of taking a minute to unpack. And then I have two final questions for you is, is this idea of just absolute freedom. And I think that like absolute freedom comes on the other side of radical curiosity, right? And, and curiosity that doesn't go into the curious experience with an agenda. So like when I had my alcohol experiment, I wasn't going into getting drunk in front of a camera with an agenda. I was literally going into it saying, because it, it, it happened because I was, I was St. Patrick's day. I had been, so I now know the dates. I didn't even know the dates at the beginning, but I now know that my last drink was December 15th. It must've been 2014. I think, I think it was 2014. And then St. Patrick's day was sometime in March. And that was what kicked off my alcohol experiment because I was like, oh, everybody's like, seems like it's so fun. It seems like it's no big deal. And so I I went and I, I was so curious that I was like, I want to know the truth about this. Like, I'm going to get drunk in front of a camera with no, no external stimulation, no, you know, and just see what happens. And I was equally as willing for me to have been like, oh yeah, that is really fun. I made a mistake. I should just start drinking again. As I was willing to be like, 
like I was willing for, like, it was an experiment. I was willing for whatever experience happened. And I think when you apply that level of just no shame, no rules, and it's so hard for people to get their heads around. I feel like that's like, man, I've had conversations with like the Mission Neurology Institute about what is the theory of this naked mind. And I'm, you know, I've been doing work to try to articulate it and work with like psychologists and PhDs to try to like articulate it because it's so much more successful than the other things that are out there. And so people are really interested and, and it's hard to articulate, but like, for me, it's at, on the other side of that, just like abject curiosity is freedom. And I think curiosity becomes such a litmus test for, is there freedom and wisdom here or is there fear here? Because if there's fear, you won't be curious, right? Like you just froze. Oh, I did. All right. Hopefully I'm back. Um, But what I was saying is like fear, if, if there's fear, like we don't allow for curiosity. It's like, it really, it really kills that. Now it's now my internet saying I'm, I'm unstable. I, I, you're, you're back though. You froze. Okay, good. Well, I'm back. You're back. So anyway, let me ask you the two questions and we can finish up, which is, first of all, where can people find you, Lynn? Should they want, because you've, you've, you've since gone through this Naked Mind Institute, you've become a certified coach. So should people want to be coached? With yeah. You? So I followed my heart. So um, I followed my heart when I uh, became an artist and, and went to the Art Institute in San Francisco to become a painter. And I followed my heart uh, when I became a, this Naked Mind coach. Because I think there's uh, there's so much freedom in this program. It's so connected to um, art. It's so connected to creativity. It's so connected to truth telling. What I want to say is that you deserve to be happy. I deserve to be happy. We all deserve to be happy. And there's a whole world out there who's going to that's going to tell you that happiness happens this way or that way. Lance, you're going to be happy if you want a puppy instead of a kitten. You're going to be happy if you drink, you know, if you're going to be happy. You're not going to be happy if you're one of those unfortunate alcoholics, because you're not going to be able to go to the party. Um, so what I want to say is uh, if you really get and know that you deserve to be happy and you get to find out what that is, then these experiments, this, this curiosity that you were started to point to, then it's all workable. You know, then it's like, what makes me happy? You know, is this wine really making me happy? Let's look at it. Let's be curious. And then you get to see the whole picture. You get to see wanting to drink. You can see, you know, getting it. You can see worrying about not having it. You can see all the space it takes up in your mind. You can see drinking. It makes me happy. Then it makes me not happy. And then you can see the next day. You get to see all of it. So it's all about being brave. And it's all about you get to be happy and you get to discover what that is, but you got to have the courage to be honest with yourself and tell yourself the truth. And your program has the tools and the information to do that, to fucking do that. It breaks through the matrix. So you not only get to break out of the matrix, but you also now have the tools to be happy. And the tools to be happy are all about being honest. So if you can be honest about not being happy and hold yourself in that, you know, it's all about, it's not so much about your experience, but your relationship to your experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it is, it is really courageous. It's really courageous to, 
sort of say, I'm not going to go by anybody else's paradigm, but I'm going to find the truth about this for myself. And I think yeah. this does is help you find the truth for yourself without any predetermined expectations. Like we never totally. have any but anybody stops drinking or anybody changes or anybody follows any sort of program or you know what I mean it's just like here's some tools I think you owe it to yourself to be as educated about alcohol as you are about Advil <laughs> and let's talk about it that's such an important point because you know when I was in um, the program in uh, like the 30-day lives and I could hop on and say I had a data point we could all explore it together right you know, and like one person I remember saying, thanks for taking the bullet for me because now I don't have to drink tonight. Uh, right. Yeah. So I'm finding out the truth for me, but I'm sharing it. And then it's, it's, you know, um, we're all waking up together. And there's, there's just no hiding, right? Like we're not all just pretending, you know, exactly. that we. Exactly. And I think that was the fear for me with what I saw and, you know, I have a lot of friends who are in 12 step and it's worked for them and it's saved their lives. And I, I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong or bad, but there was that cultish way of, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to chant these slogans. We're going to, you know, one day at a time, fucking one day at a time. You know, I, I feel like I'm one and done in so many days, you know, and ways. And, um, so yeah, where can people find me? I'm sorry, I just went on a tangent. <laughs> but I get excited about this. Um, people can find me at coachingwithlance.com. Awesome. So yeah. good. And then we'll end with this. If you could go back to um, past versions of Lance and you could talk to him about what your life is like today, what would you say? I would say your drinking is not evidence. It's not more evidence that you're flawed or imperfect. Um, it's not your fault. So I would say that. And I would also say you're, you know, I'm thinking about myself praying, you know, in the morning, just waking up with that toxic sludge. And I would tell myself, um, it's coming. You don't think it's coming, but it's coming. Mm -hmm. And um, during one of the lives, a, a coach said, you know, what if, what if you became the person that you need? Mm -hmm. And that so landed for me. And, um, and I feel like that's true now. And um, that's why I became a coach, especially, and I focus very much on the LGBTQIA++ community, because I know there's so many others out there like me and who's drinking is so connected to the trauma that we experienced growing up queer in our world. And alcohol is such an easy tool for self-medication and it works until it doesn't. I'm here for people who are ready and hungry for a freedom that has clarity and health and joy, authentic joy and, and happiness. That's yeah. real. It's got to be real. There's it's a disco be. song. It's got to be real. <laughs> <laughs> and it's worth saying that you've been such an incredible advocate for, for this naked mind in general. So the Pride LAE that we did was uh, really originated with you and your advocacy and you you really pushing me. And I'm so grateful for that. And we had the awesome privilege of meeting each other in real life at yes. Iron Castle. Yeah. yeah, that was amazing. That was really full circle. That was another, you know, wink, nod from the universe. Like, yeah, you're on the right path. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Lance. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how This Naked Mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, 
Go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious.